Hey friend, Min Huang here of Life Giving Motherhood. I am a Charlotte Mason homeschool mom of four children, plus my friend's two children. And I have been a devotee of Charlotte Mason for over a decade now. I have read her volumes over and over again. They have been life-changing for myself and for my family. It is definitely a resource that I have been sharing and recommending to all of my mama friends especially. Therefore, a resource I would like to see freely made available to every mother, to every family. I have been leading a Charlotte Mason Moms Book Club locally. Many of us are ESL for the past several years. And so for my book club, which is quite diverse, I have been reading them aloud and recording them for my Charlotte Mason moms. I realized that it would be wonderful to have these recordings made freely available to every family out there and to have it all located easily, conveniently in one place. And the idea of a podcast came to mind last year. So here it is. I am beginning with volume four ourselves because half of my moms have started reading that and they've been requesting for me to record it for them. As well, it is a book that was written for students and my students are reading ourselves as of this year. So it's great to, for them to be able to hear it read aloud while following along in their books. After ourselves, I'll make up my way to volume five and then volume six before I loop back around to volumes one, two, and three. I hope this is helpful to you as well, dear friend. Volume four, Ourselves, book one, part three, chapter eight. Love's Lords in Waiting, Courage. We all have courage. The word courage comes to us from the time when Norman French was language of the court and when chivalry was the law of noble living. The Normans perceived that courage was of the heart, as the word shows. Courage was a whole of character to a man. He who had not courage had no quality of manliness. We talk about it less in these days, but courage is still a great lord in the house of heart, having his dwelling by right in every man's soul, and indeed in even timid beasts. The Courage of Attack the sheep has the courage of attack for the sake of her lamb. The bird will sit on her eggs in the face of that monster, man. A blue tit once thought proper to nest in a letterbox. Of course, people went to see the sight, and the courage with which the little creature hissed at the gigantic intruders was very curious and admirable. The toddling child has courage to protect his pets. Many a tender mother has had the courage of an awful death to save her baby. If we would but believe it, we have all courage to face any calamity, any enemy, any death. But courage, like the other lords of our life, is attended by his demons. Fear, cowardice, pusillanimity, nervousness. The courage of endurance. Fear with his kin, panic, and anxiety is on the watch for those moments when courage sleeps, lulled by security. When we consider the splendid valor that men of all sorts show in battle, we begin to see how universal courage is. In our country, it is those who choose that enlist in the army. But the courage shown by men drawn by conscription is not less than that of our own army. Also, how possible it is for every man to be gripped by shameful fear and to act upon the panic born of fear is shown by the fact that a whole company heretofore held as brave as the rest has been known more than once to turn tail and fly before the enemy the courage of serenity 
Few of us are likely to be tried in a field of battle, but the battlefield has an advantage over the thousand battles we each have to fight in our lives because the sympathy of numbers carries men forward. The courage required to lose a leg at home through a fall or an injury on the cricket field is, perhaps, greater than that displayed by the soldier on the field. And the form of courage which meets pain and misfortune with calm endurance is needed by us all. No one escapes the call for fortitude if it be only in the dentist's chair. It is well to be sure of ourselves to know for certain that we have courage for everything that may come, not because we are more plucky than others, but because all persons are born with this Lord and Captain of the heart. Assured of our courage, we must not let this courage sleep and allow ourselves to be betrayed into panic by a carriage accident or a wasp or a rat. It is unseemly, unbecoming for any of us, even the youngest, to lose our presence of mind when we are hurt or in danger. We not only lose the chance of being of use to others, but we make ourselves a burden and a spectacle. Anxious fuss in the small emergencies of life, such as traveling, household mischances, pressure of work, is a form of panic fear, the fear that all may not go well or that something may be forgotten and left undone. Let us possess ourselves and say, what does it matter? All undue concern about things and arrangements is unworthy of us. It is only persons that matter. And the best thing we can do is to see that one person keeps a serene mind in unusual or fretting circumstances. Then we shall be sure that one person is ready to be of use. The Courage of Our Affairs The form of fear that is inclined to fret and worry and become agitated under any slight stress of circumstances darkens into anxiety in the face of some success we are striving after, some calamity that we fear. Anxiety obtains more sympathy than other forms of fear because the person who is anxious suffers much and the cause for anxiety is often sadly real. But we do ourselves injustice by being anxious. We have been sent into life fortified, some more so, some less, with a courage which should enable us to take the present without any fearful looking forward. And indeed, we do so, the feeblest of us, when we are kept fully employed by immediate things. That is how mothers and wives can go through months of the nursing of their nearest and dearest with cheerful countenance. They tell you they dare not look forward, and that they live from hour to hour, and so they are able to bring happiness and even gaiety into the sick room, though a sorrowful end is before them. If this noble courage is possible in the face of coming grief, it is also possible, if we would believe it, in the face of lesser matters, coming examinations, coming losses, coming distresses of every kind, even that worst distress when those dear to us fail us and fall away from godly living. Let not your heart be anxious, RV, is the command of Christ. The command presupposes the power of obedience, and it is for this that heavy things are spoken of the fearful and the unbelieving. The Courage of Our Opinions Besides the courage of attack, the courage of endurance, the courage of serenity, and the courage of our affairs, there are lesser forms of courage which as truly belong to the courageous heart. There is the courage of our opinions. By opinions, I do not mean the loosely taken up catchwords of the moment, those things which everybody says, and with which it is rather agreeable than otherwise to startle our less advanced friends, but those few opinions founded upon knowledge and principle which we really possess. It is worthwhile to examine ourselves as to what our opinions are as to the questions discussed in conversation or otherwise. We may find that we have no distinct opinion. If so, let us not take up with the first that offers, but think, inquire, 
read. Consider both sides, and then be ready with a gentle, clear, well-grounded expression of opinion when someone remarks. For example, I think missionaries are a mistake. The religions people have are those best suited to their natures. Or it is no use thinking about the multitude; it is the few who have intellect or art who are worth caring for, and so on. We often allow other people's opinions to pass without protest because we believe that they have been carefully thought out. But it is surprising how a word of simple conviction will arrest people who express the most outrageous opinions. At any rate, this form of courage is due from us. The courage of frankness. The courage of frankness is very charming. A certain degree of reticence is due to ourselves and to others. The person who pours out all his affairs indiscriminately is a bore. But on the other hand, he who shows undue caution, discretion, distrust is of a fearful and unbelieving spirit, and fails in the characters of the noble heart. Our motive is our best guide to the right mean in this matter. If we reserve our matters because we are unwilling to bore our friends with trivial things, it is well. But if we reserve them because we distrust the sympathy or the fairness, the kindness or the comprehension of the people we live amongst, we make a failure in courage. The courage of reproof. Many other forms of courage will occur to each of us. We can only mention one or two more. The courage of reproof is to be exercised with delicacy and gentleness. But there can be no faithful friendship between equals in age without this courage. The just and gentle reproofs given by the young to the young are perhaps more convincing and converting than the more natural and usual reproofs of elders. The courage of confession. To name one more form of courage, the courage of open, frank confession of that which we have done amiss or left undone in the small matters of daily life to the person concerned, is very strengthening. But I am not sure that the habit of confessing feelings and thoughts always arises from courage. Acts and omissions are safer ground. The courage of our capacity. Then there is what we may call the courage of our capacity, the courage which assures us that we can do the particular work which comes in our way and will not lend an ear to the craven fear which reminds us of failures in the past and unfitness in the present. It is intellectual courage too, which enables us to grapple with tasks of the mind with a sense of adequacy. Intellectual panic is responsible for many failures, for our failure to understand an argument, to follow an experiment, and very largely for our insular failure to speak and comprehend the vocables of foreign tongues. Intellectual panic is responsible too for the catchwords we pass as our opinions. We fear it is not in us to form an opinion worth the holding and worth the giving forth. The courage of opportunity, the courage of opportunity of which Shakespeare says. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune, is also connected with the courage of capacity, and is to be distinguished from the gambling spirit of foolhardiness, which is ready to seek and try all hazards. One note of difference is perhaps that courage is ready for that which comes, while foolhardiness goes a seeking. Courage waits for guidance, holding as creed that circumstance, a sacred oracle. Speaks with the voice of God to faithful souls. Chapter nine, love lords in waiting, loyalty, loyalty of youth, loyalty is the hallmark of character, but that is a misguiding simile. 
For it is good to know that loyalty is not a mark stamped upon us, but a lord of the bosom born within us. At different periods of history or at different periods of life, people give the rule of their lives to one or another of these powers of the heart. The age of chivalry was the age of loyalty, and youth ought to be especially the age of chivalry and of loyalty in each life. But perhaps this is not a loyal age. Our tendency is to believe that to think for ourselves and to serve ourselves in a way of advancement or pleasure is our chief business in life. We think that the world was made for us and not we for the world, and that we are called upon to rule and not to serve. But such thoughts come to us only in our worst moods. Loyalty, whose note is service, asserts itself. We know that we are not our own, and that according to the loyalty within us do we fulfill ourselves. Our loyalties prepared for us. We are ready enough to give whimsical loyalty to some poet or actor, soldier or priest, at whose feet we would gladly lay our service. But in this, as in the rest of our lives, we are not free to choose. Our loyalties are all prepared for us or come to us with our duties, and our choice is between being loyal and disloyal. In this regard, it is a happy thing for the nation which has a sovereign, a visible object lesson in loyalty, to be loyally loved and served for the sake of his office. Loyalty to our King One of the best lessons history has to teach us is, in the examples it holds of splendid loyalty and service, including unbounded honor and reverence to the person of the sovereign and devotion of life and substance, children and followers, to his cause. Sir Henry Lee in Woodstock is an exquisite example of this fine loyalty. As we read, we grudge that it should be spent on so little worthy a monarch. But in the end, let us remember, the knight gained more than the king by this loyalty, for it is better to be than to receive. Our late beloved queen commanded all our loyalty because she herself knew and lived for the loyalty and service she owed to her people and in that way she raised us to a higher level of living. Loyalty due to our own. After our king, our country claims our loyalty. Let us not make a mistake. Benevolence is due to the whole world. Loyalty is due to our own. And however greatly we may value or become attached to alien kings or alien countries, the debt of loyalty is due not to them, but to our own. Invidious comparisons depreciating the land of our birth in favor of some land of our choice, whose laws and rulers, ways and weather we may prefer, is of the nature of disloyalty. Public opinion responsible for anarchy. We older people are saddened, shocked, and greatly humbled by the fall of one ruler after another at the hands of the persons who call themselves anarchists. We are humbled and ashamed because we know that this manner of crime, which has no exact parallel in the history of the past, arises in truth from a failure in the spirit of loyalty in what is called public opinion. Therefore, the repeated crimes which shock us are brought home to us all, for we all help to form public opinion. There are always in every country men and women in whom the general wrong thinking about our duties to one another come, as it were, to a head and break out in crime. But it is from public opinion that these people get their original notions. We are told to speak no evil of the ruler of our people, and, if we allow ourselves to speak evil, others will take up our evil speech and turn it into criminal act. If we fret against rule, others will rise against rulers, and kings everywhere will live in terror of the assault of the regicide. The way we are bound to one another and affect one another all over the world is a very solemn thought. 
but that we can help the whole world by keeping hold of our own loyalty should be a cause of joy. Loyalty to country. I am not sure but that people lose a moral fiber when they become voluntary exiles from their own country. Every tie that we are born to is necessary to our completion. Loyalty to country, patriotism, is a noble passion. Revolutions come about when the character of a sovereign is such that right-thinking people can no longer be loyal to king and country. When unjust laws, undue taxes, the oppression of the poor, make men's hearts sore for their fatherland. Loyalty to country demands honor, service, and personal devotion. The honor due to our country requires some intelligent knowledge of our history, laws, and institutions, of her great men and her people, of her weaknesses and her strength and is not to be confounded with the ignorant and impertinent attitude of the Englishman or the Chinese who believes that to be born an Englishman or a Chinese puts him on a higher level than the people of all other countries. That his own country and his own government are right in all circumstances, and other countries and other governments are always wrong. But, on the other hand, still more to be guarded against is the caitiff spirit of him who holds his own country and his own government always in the wrong and always the worse, and exalts other nations unduly for the sake of depreciating his own. The Service of Loyalty Our service to our country in these days may not mean more than that we should take a living interest in the questions that occupy the government and the social problems that occupy thinkers and that if we are not called upon to serve the country in general, in Parliament, for example, we should give time, labor, and means to advance whatever local administration we are connected with. Perhaps this kind of loyalty has never been more nobly displayed than it is at the present time. Nor do we fail when our country claims our personal devotion. Recent events seem to show that every Briton of the lesser and the greater Britain is ready for the honor of laying down his life for its country. Loyalty to a chief. Perhaps the loyalty in which we fall short as compared with the Middle Ages is that loyalty which every man and woman owes to a chief. Again, Scott gives us the perfect expression in Torquil of the Oak, the Highland foster father who sacrificed himself and his nine stalwart sons to shield the honor of the young chief whom he knew to be a confessed coward. The whole incident, told as it is, with reserve and sympathy, offers one of the strongest situations in literature. But loyalty in this kind lives amongst us still. Few subalterns in either service would allow themselves to discuss without reserve the action or character of their chief. And as for the men, they still accepted that theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. And given that they do die because someone has blundered, one supreme moment of unquestioning loyalty to king, country, and commander is, probably, worth fifty years at the dead level of daily living. That is, supposing that the purpose of this life is our education for a fuller. It is told of certain elegant young diplomats who served their several chiefs as private secretaries that one more superb than the rest grumbled because his chief summoned him by ringing a bell. But another, who had learned the secret of dignified obedience and proud submission, asserted that if his chief asked him to clean his shoes, he would do it, of course. Instances of splendid loyalty to the heads of family, party, cause, house, school, or whatnot abound on every hand. Loyalty to personal ties. Loyalty to personal ties, relationships, friendships, dependence is a due recognized by most people. 
We all know that these ties, whether they come by nature as relationships or by choice as friendships in the lesser friendly relations, servants for example, must be loyally entertained. We know that the character and conduct of our friend is sacred from adverse criticism even in our private thoughts, that what we think and have to say of censure must be said to him and him only, that our time, our society, our sympathy and our service are at his disposal so far as we can determine. Not only so, but we know that he should have the best of us, our deepest thoughts, our highest aspirations, so far as we are able to give these forth. This last is freely acknowledged in friendships of election, but in the natural friendships of relationship which surround most of us, we are sometimes cherry of our best, and give only our commonplace, surface thoughts. And to our dependents, those on a lower educational level than ourselves, we are apt to talk down, as we suppose, to that level. We are wrong here. Our best is due in varying degrees to maintain all those relationships, natural, elected, or casual, which make up the sweetness and interest of our lives. A Constant Mind Steadfastness is, of course, of this essence of all loyalties. A man of sixty who said he had always had his boots from the same bootmaker since he first wore boots gives us a hint of the sort of loyalty we owe all round. We miss a great deal of the grace of life by running hither and thither to serve ourselves of the best, so we think, in friends, acquaintances, religions, tradesmen, servants, preachers, prophets. Perhaps there is always more of the best to be had in sticking to that we have got than in looking out continually for a new shop for every sort of wear. The strength, grace, and dignity of a constant mind is the ingathering of loyalty. It is objected that some relations are impossible and insupportable, that a servant is lazy, a tradesman dishonest, a friend unworthy, a relative aggravating. Some relations are not of our seeking and are for life, and that which must be continued should be continued with loyalty. But it is best, perhaps, to give up a chief or a dependent, for example, to whom we cannot any longer be loyal. But let the breach be with simplicity and dignity. Let us not indulge in previous gossiping and grumbling, and we should recognize that loyalty forbids small personal resentment of offenses to our amour proper. Many lives are shipwrecked upon this rock. In wronging our friends by a failure in loyalty, we injure ourselves far more. Thoroughness. The same principles of loyalty apply to loyalty to our work and to any cause we have taken up. Thoroughness and unstinted effort belong to this manner of loyalty, and therefore we have at times to figure as unamiable persons because we are unable to throw ourselves into every new cause that is brought before us. We can but do what we are able for, and loyalty to that which we are doing will often forbid efforts in new directions. Loyalty to our principles a personal loyalty of a high order is that which we owe to our principles. At first, it is those principles upon which we are brought up to which our faithfulness is due. But by and by, as character develops, convictions grow upon us which come to be bound up with our being. These, not catchwords caught up here and there from the newspapers or from common talk, are our principles, possessions that we have worked out with labor of thought and perhaps pain of feeling. He is true to himself who is true to these, and no other loyalty is to be expected of him who is not true to himself. Perhaps highest amongst these principles is our religion, not our faith in God. That is another matter, but that form of religion which to us is the expression of such faith. 
A safe rule is that loyalty forbids our dallying with other forms and other ideas, lest we should cease to hold religious convictions of any sort and become open to change and eager for the excitement of novelty. The habit of unworthy and petty criticism of the clergy or the services to which we are accustomed is apt to end in this unstable habit. Loyalty forbids this manner of petty gossip, as it also forbids the habit of running hither and thither in search of novelties. Tempers alien to loyalty. The demons which labor for the destruction of loyalty are, perhaps, self-interest, self-conceit, and self-importance. Self-interest would lead us to better ourselves at the expense of any bond. Self-conceit keeps us in a ferment of small resentments which puts allegiance out of court. And self-importance is unable to give the first place to another in things small or great, in affairs of country, parish, or home. These enemies be about us, but loyalty is within us, strong and steadfast, and asking only to be recognized that he may put the alien to flight. If you've enjoyed this episode, I invite you to give a five-star rating so more people can find Charlotte Mason's volumes. Also, if you are interested in studying Charlotte Mason's volumes, as well as growing in your own spiritual disciplines and life-giving habits to form a gospel-centered home culture, I invite you to check us out at life-givingmotherhood.com. All moms all over the world are invited. Thank you. I'll see you next time.